Time for another great podcast from ICRT. But first, a message from one of our outstanding partners. Don't forget, more information and fun on the ICRT app or at icrt.com.tw. ICRT, listen with the world. Opening on October 5th, Texas Roadhouse is bringing Taichung residents its delicious, juicy steaks and barbecue ribs. Located on Shizhen Road, Texas Roadhouse is looking forward to serving up legendary food, legendary service, and legendary fun. 美味的手工鮮切牛排,10月5日登陸台中,德州鮮切牛排台中店,位在西屯區市政路581-6號,傳奇性的美式風味,等你來嘗鮮! We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by ICRT's Southern Taiwan correspondent, Michael Smith. Hey there. Tonight we'll be discussing a whole heap of work for lawmakers in the coming months, ongoing controversy over the shooting by police of a Vietnamese national, the return of Uber to Taiwan, albeit in a rather different format, the demolition of a rather historical building in Kaohsiung, and the 2017 Eco Mobility Festival, which just happens to be taking place in Kaohsiung. But we'll begin with problems that aren't going away for the DPP. Now it's the party's annual congress this Sunday and there's a couple of issues on the agenda that could pose tricky problems for party chairwoman and president Tsai Ing-wen. Firstly, there's fresh calls for Chen Shui-bian to be granted amnesty. Chen, of course, was sentenced to 20 years in prison for corruption in 2009 but has been free on medical parole since January of 2015. Now, the presidential office this week hammered home its point that any pardon for Chen is the right and duty of the president, not of any political party or civil organisation. That, of course, came after the local council alliance for RBN's amnesty said that its petition calling for Chen's release has received the backing of large numbers of DPP representatives. According to Kaohsiung City Councillor Xiao Yong Da, there are 505 valid signatures on the petition, which he says mean that 85% of all the 591 active DPP representatives Representatives there have in fact signed it. Now, the petition is reportedly on the agenda for Sunday's party congress. So, could we see rebellion in the ranks over Chen amnesty petitions if the issue continues to be swept under the carpet by the presidential office? Or could Tsai take steps to release the former head of state? Brian, what do you see happening with this? I mean, the Chen Shui-bian issue continues to be divisive of Taiwanese society. And so, you know, particularly that's also further divisive within the DPP. Um, I mean, Chen, of course, has his followers and, you know, as the the first non-KMT president in Taiwanese history, you know, there are people that will always, you know, support him. And so that extends to at present. Um, I mean, that's that's always been a tricky issue for its high to manage because, you know, there's been calls within the DPP for Chen's pardon and for, you know, this kind of history or these kind of, you know, murky things that have not been resolved to clear up Um at the same time, you know, it would be perceived, I think, by some members of the public that Tsai is just trying to watch out for her own, even if this kind of, you know, sweeps it under the rug. So I think I think Tsai has a, a quandary here, which is pretty obvious. But, you know, I think that the current situation in which Chen is, is more or less free, despite, you know, still technically being in jail, that that is probably the optimal situation for Tsai. And I think she probably will try to stick to that. And of course, Michael, he's in your city, of course. Yes, and uh, down here, of course, uh, is a, a stronghold of the uh, current ruling DPP. 
And uh, the calls for his pardon have come from pretty much every level of the government here, from the mayor down to the city council. They've all made uh, specific petitions for Chen's pardon. But uh, as Brian was saying earlier, there really is only one person who has the right to grant amnesty, pardons, or clemency, and that would be the president. So you're hearing people down here ask why Tsai hasn't even sort of addressed the issue yet. And if you talk to the man on the street, you'll see some, uh, hear from some who say, yes, it should happen right away. Others say, you know, maman lie, take it easy. The status quo as it is right now, status quo seems to be quite popular in Taiwan. It's working. Everything is okay for now. Let's wait until perhaps after this mayoral election coming up next year. And then maybe perhaps even until after a possible re-election. So there definitely is a sense of a large amount of people in the South want to see him pardon. They want it to happen. They wonder why Tsai hasn't done anything. But there's also other people who are pragmatic about it. Right, Brian, if you, you do you think if, if President Tsai Nguyen did give Chen Shui-bian an amnesty, how would you, you know, a, the vast amount of the population as Taiwan as a whole see that? I think that would be very divisive. So I think that, you know, again, it would just really split between those that, you know, think that he was guilty and those that think he was not guilty. And that actually doesn't split cleanly between blue or green lines either, which is, I think, the very interesting part. Um yeah, but I think with regards to the DPP, Tsai does have a challenge because, you know, there are a lot of these historic things such as, you know, the, the you know people wanted Tsai to push for Taiwanese independence or, you know, take a more proactive stance on a lot of these these big issues which have been around for a while. And, you know, Chen Shui-bian is one of them. And so, you know, there are a lot of people in the DPP that have this kind of maximalist demand that they hope you and know, she would immediately push for Taiwanese independence and, you know, pardon Chen Shui-bian once she got in. And so... You know, I think I think that 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 also would not play well with the public because you know these issues are kind of linked, and so people would you know wonder if Ty wants to rock the boat on things that you know have mostly you know not been discussed. And of course, it could fractionalize the party ahead of next year's elections, Michael. Yes, very much so. Um, and if you're talking about the South, you have almost unanimous. If we're moving away from the the topic of, of Chen itself, but uh, we do have, as I said before, almost unanimous support amongst all of the people who will be running for the uh, upcoming mayor post in Kaohsiung for a pardon for him. But uh, that aside, we are looking at some very interesting developments in this race to succeed uh, Chen Ju, who really has become a mascot for uh, Kaohsiung. I mean, she served uh, the longest term uh, of a modern mayor. And uh, she, I mean, literally, I was at the City Hall uh, just a few days ago, and there's an image of the Taiwan tourism bear, right, the sun bear. And then right next to the bear is a cutout cardboard uh, picture or, you know, cartoon image of her. Her image is on the subway, it's on the roads, it's recognizable. She really has put her mark on this city. So replacing her is going to be quite uh, an issue. And the candidates that have come up so far are an interesting collection of legislators who represent different districts of Kaohsiung. So we first thought that uh, perhaps her deputy or a former deputy, Liu Sifang, would be the uh, anointed head for the, the, the election coming up. But she seems to be slipping. And there's Chen Shi Mai, who's quite well-known around Taiwan as well. He also seemed to be moving upwards in the polls as well. But then recently we had a China Times poll that put the legislator for the 7th district of Kaohsiung, Zhao Tianling, as the front-runner at 30%. So uh, if one or two of these candidates starts to fade a little bit more, it's possible they could coalesce around one of them. 
But it does seem that it will be the person in the end that Chen sort of gives the nod to, Mayor Chen currently, and anoints as a successor. And that raises other questions that people have wondered about in the South when it comes to having only one party basically guaranteed to win this election. So whoever they put up as their candidate is virtually guaranteed to become the next mayor of Kaohsiung. Yes, because we had the issue in Tainan, of course. Didn't we have, was it Lin Fei Fan came out recently and said a watermelon could win the election <laughs> in Tainan? Yeah, <laughs> said even a watermelon. That, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if the person's qualified or all of this, that we have a, a certain level of uh, conservative politics down here and uh, a devotion to the DPP that can, in some people's view, be a little bit uh, too much and a little bit uh, uh, excessive. So, uh, yeah. And of course, the elections are another issue that's going to come up at the Congress this Sunday. I mean, of course, the DPP has said that it's willing to have candidates for next year's election that aren't in the party. But other party members have said, no way, we want only party members to be nominated. And of course, the big focus here is in Taipei, with of course, Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jur. If he runs for re-election, of course, he ran for election originally as a non-DPP member and one as an independent. And there's now questions about whether he'll run as an independent again with the DPP support or simply run as an independent without the DPP support. So in Taipei, Brian, can you see Mayor Kerr winning without the DPP support? You know, I think Kerr is always a wild card. I mean, it, whether he's popular or not just seems to really fluctuate. I mean, there are times in which, you know, his popular is suddenly declining and the narrative suddenly in the media becomes that, you know, Kerr's screwing, you know, he's messing up and that, you know, he won't get reelected. And suddenly after an event such as the University Aid, suddenly his popular is back and he's the most popular, one of the most popular figures in, in Taiwan. And therefore, you know, it seems like he will win again. So I think it's, you know, the, the bets are off until, you know, then. Um, but I think that, you know, as with the original adaptation of the strategy by the DPP of supporting Koenja, this is, you know, another, another crucial issue between the relation between the DPP and kind of new political forces such as third parties or independent candidates. Yeah, of course. yeah if I can cut in real quick as well. In the South, we're seeing a, a similar thing where the anointed members or people that we thought were, were like shoe-ins may be slipping. And part of that reason may be because they're not getting this message out uh, for Kaohsiung. Now, we recently slipped from second uh, city to third city in Taiwan, if not even fourth by this uh, point. So the one candidate who does seem to be moving up in the polls is the one who's a little bit less associated with the uh, DPP old guard, and he seems to be focusing more on talking about the economy and the fact that we're losing population and uh, we just don't seem to have a plan for long-term development in the way that some other cities in Taiwan are doing. So it, uh, it's a whole new dynamic coming in here. It seems like we're looking at, a, at least in the South, we're looking at definitely a big change in the guard. Right, of course, in Taipei, the DPP go into this Sunday's party congress with headlines this week that screamed increasing tensions between the DPP and Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jur, obviously hinting at the independent candidates that could possibly represent the party next year and whether the DPP will even accept them. Anyway, moving on to central government matters and Premier William Lai was meant to outline his administrative guidelines to lawmakers today, but unfortunately his address was put back until next Tuesday. That after the KMT failed to attend a meeting on Thursday of this week, which was aimed at choosing a starting date for the next legislative session. So there you go, it got off to a rather rocky start because no one could actually agree 
referee when to start the session. <laughs> Apparently late yesterday, though, the KMT gave the nod and said it'll begin today, Friday. Now, of course, Lai won't be making his announcement today, but next week when he does, he's apparently slated to lay out two administrative goals, those being improving people's livelihoods and the economy and promoting tax, pension, judicial and transitional justice reforms. That's a big, long sentence. He's also apparently formulated a series of guidelines to achieve those goals, and these include promoting the government's forward-looking infrastructure development plan, maintaining a stable power supply, building a low-carbon living environment, and developing new and renewable energy resources. Other goals include optimising the tax system, seeking a healthy capital market, reinforcing rail transport systems and services, and turning Taoyuan International Airport into a transport hub for East Asia. Of course, some of them are new and some of them aren't new. But apparently the Cabinet has singled out 72 pieces of priority legislation that it hopes lawmakers will pass during the legislative session which only just began today, and it only barely began today. So, do you think... You can, you can you see lawmakers dealing with these 72 pieces of legislation, Brian? I mean, this more or less seems like, you know, every every issue that is on the government's plate. And so, you know, <laughs> for Lai to come in and have to deal with this, I mean, that's, that's to be expected because, you know, these were the issues that the government was dealing with anyway. I think that the real question is, you know, as a new face on the cabinet, will Lai be able to, you know turn things around from how Ling Chen was doing things or how how Ling Chen was doing things was perceived by the public. Of course, the other question is, can lawmakers turn things around? Will there be agreement in the legislative view in this session or will there be more rowdy scenes, flower bombs, <laughs> what else do they have? Whistles, I believe, and oh, air, air horns as well. But well, the, Rai has definitely indicated that he intends to try to run a tighter ship. He's mentioned on a couple occasions that he, he is hoping to be able to uh, <laughs> reduce all of that sort of stuff and get down to work. Uh, whether or not he can produce that is uh, another question. Now, in Tainan, when he served as mayor, he did show a certain spine by refusing to attend council meetings for well over a month as a corruption uh, issue was swirled around a, a certain council member there. So if he plays hardball and uh, it's successful, who knows? But there is quite a large expectation, uh, at least down here in the South, that he will be successful because he's considered to be a, uh, a good mayor in Tainan. He has a very high approval rate and it was pretty much expected that he was going to move up at some point. The fact that he moved up right at this juncture is, uh, I think most would agree, is a, is a perilous time because it's a, a, a transitional phase and all of that. But uh, there's definitely an expectation down here that uh, he's the guy for the job. And, of course, down there in Kaohsiung, you had some other news this week when your top policeman was given the top policeman job. Right, so it seems like uh, we're getting a little bit of a southern ascendancy here because you get Lai coming up from Tainan. And then all of a sudden, uh, yesterday, the chief of the Taiwan police, or the National Police Department commissioner, was he was fired, and the Kaohsiung police chief was appointed in his place. Now, most people are saying the reason for this is that the president and the government were not so happy with the recent handling of the protest uh, during the university aid in Taipei and uh, the bad publicity that that generated all over the world, actually. So uh, he, the, the original guy was, looked like he was, he was going to go. But it's unprecedented in Taiwan history for a Kaohsiung Police Department commissioner to move up directly to take over the entire country. Usually you always move to Taipei first. You do a little bit there, then perhaps move onward. So um, Tai or in, and the officials that made this decision have evidently decided to break with protocol. 
So, Brian, do you see anything? Do you see the central government moving away from central and northern Taiwan in that move to pick officials from the south, where it's more DPP friendly? Um, I think that's the it's the question of you know just groom, grooming people for political succession, and I think that you know right now there are rising political forces in the south. Um, I mean, I think that that's also one way to get around this kind of technocratic image of that Ling Chen's cabinet presented. You know, just for example, uh, just in general, that you know the the notion of Taiwanese politics being Taipei dominated. I mean, I think that you know leveraging on their bases is a smart thing to do at this current juncture. You know, regarding popularity, the popularity of the government. Right. Anyway, we'll move on from that. And Uber is looking to return to the Taiwan market, albeit in a rather different fashion, with the company this week saying that it will share its app technology with two local taxi companies for what it described as a new business model. Now, of course, Uber was forced to suspend services here in Taiwan in February of this year after the company racked up huge fines for violating transportation service laws. Now, according to the ride-sharing company, Uber Taxi, that's the name of the new Uber Taxi, not Uber, it's Uber Taxi now, and that's going to be launched in Taipei only, I presume, by mid-October in partnership with two of the city's taxi companies, one being Crown Taxi, and the other being Yatai Taxi. Now, Uber's chief business officer in the Asia-Pacific area has said that the so-called Uber taxi trips will be GPS-tracked. Well, nothing new there. Regular Uber taxis were GPS-tracked. But passengers will this time pay in cash based on the taxi meter, unlike the old Uber where meters were not used. And, of course, they deducted the money from your credit cards. So do you think, do you think this is Uber moving back in or Uber sort of moving back in or are simply two taxi companies making use of Uber's app technology, Brian? I mean, I think the question with Uber is that, you know, Uber is it's always willing to enter countries even if it proves disruptive to that country or when it comes into conflict with the government. And so I think Uber definitely wants to stay in Taiwan, even if that means rebranding. Um, but it's a question, you know, what Uber intends to do with that. This is, this is big rebranding, of course. That's right. It's, it's, not it's, Uber, it's, is it? it's, it's not so different from, you know, 55688, the uh, Taiwan know, taxi. Exactly. The Taiwan I was, was going to ask that. I mean, we have uh, apps uh, where you can, down here, I'm sure in Taipei as well, where you can, you can get a taxi to your house within three to five minutes by just pressing a few buttons. So I'm interested to know what this uh, reinvention is, actually. Yeah, I think, who knows? I think we'll have to find out to mid-October when someone takes a taxi. I will admit that I took two Uber taxis when Uber was operating here under the name of Uber. And I wasn't too impressed with either of them. So well, we may- have an interesting phenomenon down here. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, you let this technology out of the uh, genie bottle, right? You can't put it back in. Hmm. So we've uh, seen in Kaohsiung uh, sprout up illegal Uber services where people will use sort of uh, one of those social media sites like Line or WhatsApp or whatever, and they'll make a group, and you have to be vetted to get in. So they're trying to keep, like, cops and uh, people out of it. And once you get inside this group, then you can order a cab in the same way on this uh, line and a, a car will come and take you and they only charge about a third of what a taxi does so that's a whole nother story of uh, just you know, technology being pretty much unstoppable in its own way so the taxis have done their best uh, I've actually interviewed a couple of them in Kaohsiung they've talked about all the innovations that they've come up with the uh, apps the uh, touch screens the pay by card uh, even credit cards uh, karaoke machines and some of them but still, um, when something is cheaper and easier, uh, many people will choose that. Of course, Uber was cheaper, of course. Mm, it was right. uh, in, in some cases, or most cases, yes. I also wonder if that means that you know Uber wants to get into Taiwan to establish a foothold with this app, and eventually, you know, they want to shift models back to what they had originally. I mean, that, that's kind that of would make sense. That would be that would be the way to do it, I guess. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be back after these interesting commercials. 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin the second half of the show talking with Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners Law Firm about the latest news in the shooting by police in Shinzu County last month of a Vietnamese national. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Gavin. So, the father and sister of Nguyen Quoc Pi rallied in front of the presidential office on Wednesday of this week, accompanied by Labour Rights Group's members as they seek justice for the death of Nguyen. And along with their lawyers and Labour Rights activists, they were allowed inside the presidential office where they submitted a petition to officials there calling for a full and fair investigation into the case. Now, reports have said that Nguyen was shot between six and nine times by the police officer and that has led to charges of excessive force by the police and also racial profiling. Right. Well, uh, first of all, I think it, it uh, should be mentioned right away that uh, there is no um, law against racial profiling in Taiwan. Uh, the police are free to uh, profile people based on their race and, uh, and, and then um, confront them. Uh, but the serious issue in this case, or at least the first serious issue in this case, is definitely whether or not the use of lethal force in this case was disproportional. Um, what Taiwan has a, a law which is called the Act Governing the Use of Police Weapons. Um, and that law is actually very similar to uh, laws that used to be in effect in England and the United States under the common law which was known as the fleeing felon rule, which meant that basically if somebody had committed uh, a crime, a felony, and then they were fleeing or they were resisting arrest, the police could use deadly force to stop them or arrest them. Now, that is, those rules are no longer in effect in either the United States or England. You can't just shoot a fleeing suspect or somebody who, who resists arrest unless they're posing an imminent threat to the officer or somebody else's lives. However, the law on the books in Taiwan uh, seems to say that uh, they can shoot anyone who resists arrest. And in this case, uh, it appears, at least from the police story, that there was an altercation. He did resist arrest. Pepper spray was used. Um, and so according to the letter of law, uh, the police officer may have been justified in using his weapon. However, uh, in recent years, the Taiwanese courts have put some limits on this. Uh, there was a case a few years ago where a police officer got convicted because he shot somebody while he was standing by the side of their car, uh, the parked car, shot him three times and he died, and the police, uh, the officer ended up getting convicted for manslaughter on the grounds that, yes, he could use uh, lethal force to make an arrest, but this was totally disproportional. And I think that we don't have the facts in this case yet, but I think that there's good reason to believe that as the facts come out, there very well could be a case against this police officer for uh, a, a legal use of force, but disproportional to the circumstances. Right, and there's also been controversy over video footage from one of the two ambulances that attended the incident, appearing to show police and paramedics delaying the treatment of Nguyen after he was shot. Now, of course, police have so far refused to release any of their footage of the shooting. Yes, that's the second big issue in this case. Uh, and it, it, there, there's footage of uh, uh, Mr. Nguyen on the, on the ground, obviously seriously injured. Uh, he does uh, sort of halfway get up and ineffectually throw a rock at a police officer and also attempts to get into the police car, uh, at which point the police come over and kind of stop him from, from doing that. But they didn't handcuff him. 
Uh, and then the ambulance arrives, and they take away uh, uh, some one of the other people who was involved in the altercation. They leave this guy who's been shot nine times uh, just lying right there on the ground, and the police make no effort to, to, to help him. So I think there are some very real questions about what happened with why he didn't get immediate medical care when he was pretty clearly uh, already already disabled or could have easily been handcuffed and then taken on to the first ambulance. Uh, so that's the second big question in this case. Right, what about the police? I mean, do you think the police should release the, any footage they have from either dash cams or body cams, or do you think they're keeping it for a possible trial? Well, the law in Taiwan is that this, this case has already been referred to the prosecutors for a criminal investigation, which is normal procedure. And anything related to a case that's in the prosecutor's investigation phase of the case is supposed to be strictly confidential. So they're not going to uh, release that video uh, footage, and they're not supposed to. It would be against the law to do that. That, of course, raises the question, though, of how some of the video footage has already been released. Um, and leaky prosecutorial investigations are, 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 are all too common. Uh, the law is clear that nothing is supposed to leak. Everything is confidential. Uh, but stuff does leak, as has been the case uh, here. So I don't think they're going to release any videos anytime soon. Right, and Vietnam's top representative to Taiwan on Tuesday of this week said that he'd asked the government personally to follow the law in handling the investigation into Nguyen's death, and he also said that he was happy to see that the Control UN, or Taiwan's leading government watchdog body, is also currently investigating the shooting. Now, labour rights groups have said that the incident reflects the many problems faced by migrant workers here in Taiwan, and they also say that prejudices against such workers happen all the time. Well, I, I, I would tend to agree with both of those propositions, that there is widespread uh, discrimination against Southeast Asian workers, and that the current legal framework, which doesn't allow them to change jobs freely, uh, places them in a form of, you know, what I would call indentured servitude at best. And so it's not surprising that people leave uh, abusive employers and then find themselves in, in, you know, difficult situations like Mr. Nguyen may have been in. Um, I'm not totally convinced that that was the, either of those, as true as those, those, those phenomena are, I'm not quite sure that either of them directly caused uh, this particular uh, event. Um, I would emphasize that this use of disproportional lethal force by the Taiwanese police is something that's very common against Taiwanese people as well. Uh, if you follow the news, you'll see many cases where the police are in hot pursuit of suspects, usually drug suspects, in crowded places like, you know, near MRT stations or a tragic case in Taoyuan where they were after a, uh, some people in a vehicle, and the vehicle, after being shot, they ended up running over a two-year-old girl. So I think there are some real problems uh, with the way the police use lethal force against everybody. I'm not sure it's specifically directed at uh, Southeast Asians. Nonetheless, I do think that the, the group's um, points about the broader context of what is causing incidents like that are, are, are on the mark. Because, of course, the local media here has referred to Nguyen as a runaway migrant worker as opposed to simply calling him a Vietnamese national. Yes, well, I, that, that the, you, may, you may have heard that the National Immigration uh, agency has decided to uh, change their terminology uh, for this, since obviously 
Uh, a little bit less so in Chinese, and especially because there's no, you know, but for at least for Americans, this, this, the use of the word runaway immediately, you know, has associations with slavery. Uh, and so it seems like a very inappropriate uh, term. But they, they're changing it to, uh, you know, migrant workers that they're no longer in contact with, uh, kind of a more um, neutral Term and there and there's also a suggestion that uh, that in the future, in this case, it was regular police who were dealing with Mr. Nguyen, and the idea might be that in the future, that only the National Immigration uh, Agency, which has its own police force, would be dealing specifically with with uh, uh, migrant workers who are not at their legal jobs, uh, and since they are getting better training and are presumably a little bit more sensitive about some of these issues. And and from having dealt with them, I think that is really true. Many of them are very sympathetic and understand the difficulties that that migrant workers find themselves in. And it would be better if they were specifically tasked and that was put out of the jurisdiction of ordinary police. Right. Thank you very much, Michael. And of course, I'm sure we'll be chatting about this case some more in the coming months. That would be great, Gavin. I think this is a case that's well worth following and will say a lot about Taiwan's legal system, depending on how it's handled. So it's great to hear that ICRT is concerned. And that was me in conversation with Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners Law Firm. Now, as we've got Michael on the show today from downtown in Kaohsiung, we're going to turn our attention to the southern city and issues from there, the first of which concerns the city's Water Resources Bureau, and it demolished a 90-year-old Japanese-era wooden police dormitory earlier this week without first assessing the property's cultural value. Now, needless to say, the move angered city residents who have accused the Water Bureau of failing to respect Kaohsiung's cultural heritage and of demolishing it without first seeking official approval to do so. Now, the Water Bureau says it was ordered to demolish the building, which was a dormitory for police in the Japanese era, to make space for households who need to move because of a water drainage construction project. But that hasn't stopped most of the public in Kaohsiung demanding an answer and accusing the Water Bureau of basically violating the Cultural Heritage Preservation Act. So there's lots of development at the moment, of course, in Kaohsiung, Michael. And knocking old buildings down is probably not helping its cause. Yeah, well, the, uh, the Water Bureau was in trouble two weeks ago when rumors came out that they were planning on paving over a bit of wetland in uh, Niaosong District, right next to the Chenching Lake for a parking lot in uh, almost a classic Joni Mitchell style. But uh, they came out, they denied that, they said they never had that plan, and uh, all seemed good until then when this uh, demolition took place just a few days ago. So, um, again, we we just don't seem to understand the plan that the government has in place for preservation. Because on the one hand, you'll see certain things like the wall in Zoying, the uh, ancient wall from the Qing Dynasty, being preserved and rebuilt after it uh, toppled over in one section uh, after a recent uh, typhoon. And they're doing a meticulous job with that, with the stones and everything. But then you find other places like this, where you have a 90-year-old Japanese made out of uh, Taiwan's uh, cypress wood. This is uh, a beautifully constructed building, and it is a huge slice of Taiwan's history. Now, we all know that Taiwan has a long and convoluted history, and that means that a lot of the ancient things that once existed here simply don't anymore. There's a million reasons for that, from invasions to bombing to all the rest. But we do have, especially in certain sections of Kaohsiung, we have 
Japanese-style buildings. So if you go to Chisan, for example, or Meinong, or some of these eastern, northeastern parts of Kaohsiung, you'll find old streets where all the buildings on there were constructed during the colonial period, and they've been relatively well-preserved, and the government makes a, a, a walking street there and everything. So on the one hand, we have these certain treasures, and then all of a sudden this will be gone. The other day there was a well as well that was just suddenly uh, destroyed as well. So there seems to be no coherent policy over this, and it's causing quite a bit of frustration. Just yesterday, there was a, a, another case in Sanming District, right downtown in Kaohsiung, where they found a small cemetery, and they even found the remains of a foreigner that died in Kaohsiung, in 19, who died in Kaohsiung in 1935. So they're planning on uh, paving over that and turning it into construction uh, areas as well. So now this new group is coming in and trying to get the city to not uh, relocate or destroy this, this area as well. So, I mean, I, I personally just agree with the, the, the preservationists. I feel like we have not that many uh, things to preserve, so we really should make a, a bigger effort to do so. And that seems to be the general consensus. Of course, this happens in Taipei as well. Mm, that's right. I think uh, it's often one of the issues in which, you know, city mayors come into conflict with local residents. I mean, you know, there are all these different... Um, I mean, in Taipei, the most famous one in the past few years is probably the Nankang bottle cap factory. But, you know, whether in Kaohsiung or Taichung or Taipei or any other city, you know, there's a lot of this Japanese colonial architecture that is being demolished or, you know, architecture from other 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 periods of time. You know, sometimes it's for the sake of commercial development, sometimes for infrastructure. And sometimes, you know, that also gets bound up with questions of residential evictions, because, you know, sometimes you do have people living on this uh, these kind of historic areas. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem to be one of the Mars on, on Jenju's record that, you know, she does come into conflict with local residents regarding residential evictions and dem- demolition of historical sites. And then you have to balance it, because uh, in Kaohsiung, uh, two months ago, we had a market that had taken over a road uh, at the end of Sichuan Road in Kaohsiung. It, it had sat there for 40 years, but what that meant was that it had blocked a road that was a major artery into the Sanmin district, which is heavily populated. So people had to drive around this market. It caused traffic jams. So for 40 years, this market has been a problem there, and people were saying, well, preserve it, preserve it, but Honestly, after they removed it and the road has been put through, it is a lot easier to get into the Sanmin district and traffic has gone down and all the rest of it. So there is a, a balance between uh, preservation and uh, you know, the needs of people who are living today and all that. And Taiwan is obviously not a place with a lot of land, right? So it's a very complicated uh, topic. But when we're talking about Kaohsiung, we have just these certain sections in the north and east of the city. And these sections are not heavily populated at all. Uh, so in that, those areas, we're, we, we're seeing a, a strong desire by residents to keep these buildings and keep uh, these, these sites. Because honestly, that is going to need to be one of their tourist attractions because there's not a lot aside from natural beauty. I mean, it's always a question of, I think, uh, central planning versus, you know, the wish of, wishes of uh, local residents. And sometimes mm. I wonder about, you know, whether local residents are being consulted adequately before these kind of, you know, plans of urban development are made. Probably not. Just yes. on my experience of local government, basically. Right. So then when I was asking about this building that they tore down, the 90-year-old, uh, who owned the building? And they were like, well, that's hard to say because... Uh, it's on uh, Chisan government land, but then technically it belonged once to this group and then it was passed over here. So when you say, like, who should we consult for this, it becomes quite difficult. So in the end, somebody just signed their name to an order and said, go for it. 
So it, it's also wrapped up in this sort of uh, question of you know, who owns it. And if you're going to preserve it, then you need to have a budget to do so. You need to have uh, – I was up there not too long ago, and they have a, an old building that used to uh, hang uh, tobacco leaves and dry tobacco leaves. So an organization has come in and took over these old uh, – they're from 1935. So they took over it. They've refurbished it. They're paying to maintain it. So if you're going to maintain something, that also is another issue. Where is the budget for that coming from? Right. And before we go, Kaohsiung is gearing up to host the 2017 Eco Mobility Festival. And along with showcasing the latest in environmentally friendly technology and transportation methods, a part of your fair city, Michael, will be banning fossil fuel burning vehicles for an entire month as part of the event. Now, I can see this all going to pot when an old geezer gets on his scooter and <laughs> pottles down the road. But, I mean, this well, is the. Uh, real quick, because uh, you can look up this information online and we'll be talking about it more on ICRT over the coming uh, days and weeks and, and all that. But, yes, what happened was they took the oldest neighborhood in Kaohsiung, and it was created in 1908 by the Japanese who dredged Kaohsiung Harbor when they realized that they needed a better harbor to be able to ship uh, agricultural products out of the south of Taiwan back to what were that time the home islands of Japan. So they dug up the port and put the soil on uh, an area, and that became what's known as Hamashin. That became our first uh, neighborhood that had a post office, government offices, and all that. So it's a small neighborhood, but it's uh, culturally significant and densely populated, narrow roads and all that. So what they've managed to do over the course of a year is convince all the people that live in this neighborhood to go ahead with the plan of sealing off, there's actually going to be fences and all of that, the entire neighborhood for the Eco Mobility World Festival 2017. This is a festival that happens every two years. It's happened in South Korea and Johannesburg previously. So this neighborhood for that month, even the people who live there will have to get rides on electric scooters. They'll have their stuff delivered to them by uh, e-bicycles or various other transport. And when you go down there over the course of the month of October, for the entire month, you'll be able to attend seminars, check out uh, environmentally friendly housing designs and all of that. But yes, the main point is mobility. So can you get around, can you survive in a small neighborhood with maybe just using driverless electric buses or scooters or this sort of thing? So it is an experiment, and it will help the rest of Taiwan, the organizers say, to be able to look at the things that work and the ones that don't work and then perhaps modify that for other areas in Taiwan. So it's a bold experiment. It's very interesting. But uh, we'll, like you said, we'll see if, uh, uh, how many days it takes before some guy goes riding in there. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a good question. I mean, that is a problem facing, I think, particularly the South um, nowadays with, you know, large amounts of smog. I mean, it, it's hard to say if changing one district will, you know, be able to pave the path for that. I mean, I think that also depends on, you know, how willing city governments are to do this kind of, push these kind of environmental legislation, yeah, these kind I of think, environmental I, I restriction and regulation the law. That it's better than, that's right. than mm -hmm. what it would otherwise be. Because, like, in the South here, I hop on my scooter and I can get anywhere in, like, 10, 15 minutes. So there's a, a disincentivization for me to use public transportation. But like in Taipei, you have a, a neighborhood like Beitou, for example, where you have narrow little streets and mountainous roads and stuff. If you had a little driverless bus that was going every 10 minutes up and down this road and shuttling you to the MRT station, maybe you would start to consider changing your ways. So that's what the organizers are trying to get across to Taiwan, that check out these different things, see if perhaps they would work in your area. Obviously, if you were in you know, central Taiwan, you'd still need a, a car, but there are places where it might work. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, with Kaohsiung particularly, there's issues establishing public transport. So I think that this will be an interesting test case. Um, yeah, we have these two subway lines and the uh, green um, light rail thing is also coming in. Within eight years, they're planning the next subway line that would go out to the Chenjing Lake. And ridership has increased uh, steadily, and it's doing much, much better than a few years ago. But yeah, Kaohsiung has had a, a hard time moving towards uh, public transportation. They, even though we have subway lines and Taichung doesn't, well, I saw a stat uh, not too long ago that said more people in Taichung do use public transportation than here. So that's kind of uh, uh, unfortunate, if nothing else. Right, and that's where we'll be getting on our electric vehicle and shuttling off from here on Taiwan this week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung, a lot of Kaohsiung in today's edition by Michael Smith. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out the Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT. FM 100.